Well, it's so good to have you here with us this morning on December 22nd, some 48 hours away from Christmas morning. And it's so, yeah, we got some people excited about Christmas morning. It's okay, it's okay. Some of us are panicking. The, the, the gift buying and purchasing has not even begun for a large portion of us in the room. So we know how to pray for some of our brothers and sisters that are here this morning. Uh, we're so grateful that you're here this morning, and it is so good to have the children. Uh, it is true, five years ago, we had 15 children in this church, all under second grade. What a beautiful picture. The church is not just one generation, it's intergenerational, it's multi-generational. What an awesome picture to hear those kids. And the student ministry, the students, um, oftentimes teenagers are told, when you grow up, you can lead, like just simmer down, and when you get a little older, then you can contribute. But this is the church, and they are the leaders of today. And so how beautiful um, and how grateful am I that, that you would support that and encourage that. Uh, so when you see these students in the hallway and you see these children, brag on them, tell them what a good job they did uh, and how their offering uh, is pleasing to the Lord. It's so good. Uh, to see that this morning. Uh, We're going to continue worshiping by reading God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you, I strongly want to encourage you to turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, which is at the end of the Bible. And the reason I would encourage you to do that is we would love for you to read with us as we publicly read Scripture, but we want you to be able to read these verses the other six days of the week when we're scattered throughout Nashville and Middle Tennessee, and we hope that what we do here in this room kind of works its way into the fabric of our lives and makes a difference outside of these walls. We've been in the book of Revelation, which admittedly I have mentioned is a little bit different during Advent season or Christmas time. Advent means coming or arrival, means the expectation of the arrival of something. And over 2,000 years ago, God came to earth in the flesh, Jesus The Christ child born in Bethlehem, he has arrived, but he now resides at the right hand of God in heaven, and one day, the Bible says, he's coming back. He's coming back to establish his eternal, perfect, never-ending kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness and joy, and we live in between that, the first advent and the second advent. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, we're thrilled to celebrate your arrival on Wednesday of this week, but we can't wait for your return because of what it's going to mean for us. And that's exactly what these verses tell us this morning. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And we're going to read from Revelation 21. And we'll read verses 1 through 7 together. John, a follower of Jesus, tells us this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous or old order of things have passed away. Then one, the one seated on the throne, said, Look, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. 
And then he said to me, John says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. And a loud voice said, God will be with his people, and he will live with them, and he will be their God. Because behold, I make all things new. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your people have gathered here in this place and in this location on this Lord's Day to publicly profess our belief in you. We are so grateful that you sent your son for us in the nativity at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we long and wait for the arrival of your return when you will truly make all things new and we will be close and near to you forever. Give us hope in that. Remind us of your truth and allow our confidence to grow in the promises of God that all come true in the person of Jesus, in whose name we now pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, in this text, John is giving us a description of what heaven is like and what the throne room of God is like. He talked about a new heaven and a new earth. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about heaven or when heaven is a topic of conversation among Christ followers, sometimes we, we tend to be preoccupied with the description of heaven what it looks like, what the dimensions are, what, what the resources or materials are that comprise that holy, awesome city that is a real reality for us in the future. You know, it's not unusual, and that's part of the human condition. You walk in a place that is awesome or, or is neat and unique, and you're drawn to the materials or, or, or the appearance of the place more than maybe what that place holds or what its purpose is. It's not unusual when someone comes in this building throughout the week, they might even walk in this room and they'll talk about the exposed brick wall or the, the floor or the, the stamped concrete in the commons area. And they, they'll say, look at this or tell me about that. We're just naturally drawn to spaces and dimensions and materials. That's what we tend to be drawn to when we hear heaven or we talk about heaven. That's how most of us are. And Revelation says, yes, there's walls of jasper. I don't even know what that looks like, but Revelation says it's true. There's gold there that is clear as glass. I definitely don't even know what that means. But there's jasper, and there's gold, and there's sapphire, and there's pearls, and there are streets of gold. Listen, giving our attention to those things, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And we can be fascinated by that and even drawn to it, captivated, if you will. Because heaven's a literal place, and it'll be our future reality. But I want you to notice what God seems to be most preoccupied about in heaven. We may be drawn to where it is and what it looks like, but look at what verse 3 says about what God seems to be preoccupied with. He's not so much focused on what it's made of, but actually who's there. In verse 3, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now listen, if God tells us something in Scripture, every verse, there are no throwaway lines in Scripture. Every verse has purpose. Every verse has meaning. And if God tells us, I will be there with my people once, he may say it a second time in Scripture to really drive home the point. 
But if Scripture says it three and four and five times, God wants to make sure we don't leave this place without understanding what he's trying to communicate to us about heaven. So if you have a pen and you want to underline these, you can. But five times in one verse it says God's dwelling is with people, and he will live with the people, and he will be with the peoples, and he will be with the people, and the people will be with their God. It's totally okay for us to be preoccupied with where heaven is and what it's made of, but scripture is clear that God is not focused so much on what heaven's made of, but who is there, and it's us. It is us. Yes, he is certainly preoccupied with his glory and his majesty and wanting to make his name known among the nations, but what is God focused on and giving his attention to? The reality that any follower of Christ in this life at that point will be gathered together in this holy city and the people will be there. You see, it's us who are supposed to be focused on God and we sometimes focus on the details and the peripheral. It's God who could say, look at this and I built this and I designed it this way and yet he's the one, of course he is, leading by example to show us I'm not focused on all the peripheral, I'm focused on you being there. The people of God being there is what he wants and what he focuses on and what he seems to be preoccupied with the most. And the beautiful city of God, heaven, is wrapped up. And from God's perspective, the beauty of it is wrapped up in the arrival of his people and the nearness to us. Now, we have nearness to God in this life. We do. You can know God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you can be in relationship with God. You can be near to him. And sometimes we feel that more often than other times. Maybe when a, a moving song emotionally stirs us and we feel like we're close to God. Or maybe when we walk through a difficult valley or hardship and you feel, you feel almost sandblasted to God, as Joni Erickson Tata said in one of her books. Like, you go through hardship and suffering and you feel like you've been sandblasted to him and you're close to him. There are times where you can feel really close. But that, that, that high or that feeling of closeness doesn't always stay. It doesn't last. The mountaintop experiences feel great, right? But have you ever flown a plane over a mountaintop? There's snow up there. There's ice up there. The temperatures are cold. It really isn't prone to vegetation and prolonged growth. You have to come back down into the valley. And in this beautiful but broken world that is affected by sin and our sinful nature, sometimes we struggle to feel like God is near. You ever prayed and you're like, did he hear me? Like, how do I know he's even there, right? We struggle. We may have nearness through relationship with him, but in this beautiful but broken world, we don't always feel it. And one of the most beautiful things about the second advent or the coming of Christ, the thing we celebrate at Christmas time, is that one day when God returns, we will be with him and we'll be close with him and we'll be near to him and we'll know that that's what he wants. But we will most definitely have it. And you won't have to struggle to know, did he hear me? Is he around? Can he be found? Can he be discovered? You will know it. You won't have to have faith in that. You will see him and you will be with him. And one of the examples John gives us that guarantees this truth, that we will be close to God, that Advent guarantees the nearness of God to us, is that in verse 1 he says there was no sea. There was no sea. Now listen, there's a lot of things going on in heaven but John decided of all the things to tell us that doesn't exist, which I find interesting, right, is that there's no sea. Like, I don't get out on the lake. I don't go to Center Hill. I don't go to Percy Priest. I'm not a boatsman. I don't even know if that's the right word for someone who gets out on the lake, right? I, I, like, why would you tell me there's no sea? Why don't you tell me there's no mountains or there's no this or there's no that? Well, here's what's interesting. Hang with me for just a moment. 
But the sea in first century was, was a symbol or a place of storms, right? It was unpredictable. It was unknown. The sea represented globally, generally, the sea represented danger and chaos. And even if it looked still on the surface, the undercurrents were moving. It was constantly changing. There was a fear of the unknown and constant unpredictable chaos. I don't know if anybody in this room feels that way about life or the circumstances of we're about to conclude a year and go into 2020 and the fear of the unknown and what's out there. The sea was that symbol for the people in the first century who this letter was written to. I want you to think about that. We can identify with them. You ever been water skiing? You fall off the skis and you're waiting on the boat to come get you? Anybody other than a 6'5", 240 guy just floating and bobbing thinking, I hope something doesn't reach up and grab my foot? It's the, it's the most insane, irrational thought, like, how deep is this and how far? Like, you guys hurry, let's go. Let's speed it up here, ready, ready. Because I'm not really good at water skiing, I get a lot of practice with that fear and overcoming that fear. But we've all been there, right? The sea represented the unknown. Constant change, constant chaos. And even in Revelation, anytime the word sea pops up before this chapter, it represents almost a, a separation between God and his people, that he's holy and we're not. He is infinite, and we're finite. There's a holiness about God that he's God and we're not, and there's also the unknown about the future and circumstances in life. And John tells us, anytime that we see in Scripture that God reveals something to us, it's not just giving us added detail. He says, of all the things he could have told us there was no more of, there was no more see. It's as if God's saying, listen, when that comes, when that day comes and I gather you to myself in heaven, I want you to know something. I will have removed every ounce of chaos and uncertainty and fear and anxiety. I will have removed all of that because there is no sea. And that is symbolic of all of the fears and all of the anxiety and all of the, the concerns and the anxiety that's represented in this room. It'll be gone. It'll be removed. But not only that, there will be nothing separating us. We will not be God. He'll be God. And we will be his people. But there will be closeness and we will be near him because Advent guarantees the nearness of God to his people. And that's really bringing the whole story of the Bible full circle. I mean, isn't that what God wanted in the Garden of Eden? What God wanted in the Garden of Eden, the first couple of chapters of the Bible, is to create a people he could be in relationship with. You ever notice that? Like there's animals and there's vegetation and there's like, I mean, you ever wondered where's the Garden of Eden? What did it look like? And there's artistic renderings of it like, here again, you notice in a theme, God doesn't seem to be so concerned with the details of what Eden looked like, but who was there? All he wanted was to be in relationship with Adam and Eve, to be in close, perfect, unbroken, unhindered relationship. And that's how the Bible started. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it, it puts separation. That's what sin does. It puts separation and distance, and Adam and Eve wanted to cover up. They wanted to hide from God. The Bible tells us that's how things started. That's what God wanted. The Bible tells us that's how things are going to end. The Garden of Eden wasn't about the details and the lavishness and where it was and location and geography. It was about God's there and his people are there and everything's right. You can be fully known and fully yourself and let your guard down and be vulnerable and be transparent with God because who else knows you best and loves you most than the one who made you? And that's where it's going. That's, that's where it's going to end. That, I can't wait for that day where we don't have to wear a mask like, or pretend to be the person we want other people to think we are, right? Not that we do that on social media at all or anything, but like, isn't it going to be great when you can just be yourself and be fully loved and relaxed and just say, 
now with God's help, I will become myself. So looking forward to that. That's where it started. That's where it ended. And guess where we are in 2019? We're right in the middle of that. We're right in the middle of that playing out. It was all about being with God then. It's going to be all about being with God then. So my question is, does that change your perspective now? Does that change your perspective now? If it was just you and God in this room and that was it, and that was it, and what he cared about most was being in relationship with you, would you and I care most about being in relationship with him? Now, I have to confess, sometimes it's no. It's no. In my flesh, I just, yes, I do, but could you also do this, and could you answer this prayer, and really would love to see this. Not even personally, like, love to see this happen in our community or around the world. Like, but what if it was just you and God? Would that be enough? And, and that's not meant necessarily to, to offend, but if the Holy Spirit convicts you in the same way he did me this week, asking myself that question, because I wouldn't ask you a question without running it through my heart and, and my mind as well. But if the Holy Spirit convicts you, maybe the prayer is, Lord, let me be fully content and satisfied in you alone. And then anything else is just gravy. This is good. But one of the reasons we say, come, Lord Jesus, is in that day, listen, I, I really am looking forward to the day where I'll be fully content and satisfied in him. I won't want anything else. I won't even think to need anything else. And I can't wait for that day. That's what's lying ahead of us. And so John describes here a new heaven and a new earth, and God is with his people, and that's what he's always wanted to begin with. And when we think of new, sometimes we think of like a better version of something, right? When we think of new, we think of a better version of something, like 2.0. How many ads come on? It's like, try our new and improved, and it's like a better version of something that already exists. What's interesting about Scripture is the Greek word here for new doesn't mean a better version of something that already exists. It means a vastly superior, completely transformed version of something. It means completely new, vastly superior. And the best example, let's go ahead and illustrate the obvious. The best example, not that any of us could give, but God's already given us a great example. It is an elementary example, but it's the best example of what the new heaven and the new earth and God's people being there, new life in Christ will be like. The best illustration God's ever given us is the journey of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Of a caterpillar to a butterfly. I, listen, I'm not kidding with you. Like For those of you that are like, yes, please show us pictures that they're showing in the back worship area for the preschool and children. Well, today is your day. You're going to get one. This is the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And listen, I don't want to speak ill of anything that God created, all right, other than like lemurs and other things that are weird and odd at the Nashville Zoo that I don't understand. And why are ants on the ark? Who knows, Right? That thing on the far left, the caterpillar, I know God loves him, but that is unique. And, and that is not what we would call pretty, okay? But, but when that thing starts to weave that cocoon and go into that shell, and days give into weeks, and when the transformation happens, and that thing on the far right, a caterpillar comes out of that shell, we're not talking about a new and improved worm, Right? New does not mean new and improved worm. We're talking about something vastly superior that only God could think, I'm going to create a caterpillar that then weaves himself into his own house, closes up shop for a few weeks, and when he comes out, he's completely and vastly superior, more beautiful and more fully alive 
than anyone could have imagined. And when John says there's a new heaven and a new earth, for some of us when we say, like, we'll be with God, it'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It'll be vastly better than anything you've ever known. Guess what? You'll be new. You'll be new. You will be more fully alive than you have ever been in your life because of God's faithfulness to us. Isn't that what he told the disciples before he left them in Galilee, right at the end of his life? Listen, don't be afraid. I mean, how many times does Scripture say, don't be afraid? Don't be afraid. Listen, you know the place I'm going. I'm going to my father's house. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. And when I go there, I'll prepare a place for you. And I will come back to get you. Right? And he's coming back the second advent. And some of us, we will go to be with him. But God has promised, I'll take you to be with me there. And the new heaven and the new earth, it'll be a new you. And what happens in this life, when you give your life to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you, you are born again. You have new life in this life. I don't want to downplay that. You have new life. And it's not just like a better version of you. Because God didn't send Jesus to make bad people turn into good people. God sent Jesus, thank you for Christmas, to make dead people come alive. And it's as one pastor described one time I heard, it's, it's not as if we're bad and need to be better. Like, we are dead. It's not like we're floating, and using that sea metaphor, it's not like we're floating on the water and we need God to throw us a life raft. We are dead and drowning at the bottom of the ocean. And God himself swims down and rescues us and lays us out and performs CPR and breathes life into us. We're talking about new life, alive. And so when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you place your faith in him, you are alive. You are new. Here's what's fascinating about the word that's used in Revelation 21. The word for new is the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's the same word for new that's used in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation resurrection, new life. So here's the deal. The gospel means that you and I, the good news of Jesus means you and I can begin again. There is newness to life. We can start over again in Christ in this life. And that's hope for many of us that are looking for a second chance, a new life, and do-overs. If anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation, and the old has passed away, and see the new has come. Transformation. Not a better worm, but a butterfly, a new thing that is beautiful and precious and cherished and favored by God. That's who we are in Christ right now. You don't have to wait to enjoy that new life. And for those of us who are looking for that good news, we're looking for that hope, you can't buy it, you can't unwrap it under a tree, you can't find it in a relationship with another human or a job or attaboys from your boss or a word of encouragement or affirmation from your parents, though we may want those things. You can't find this new life in anyone but the person of Jesus Christ. That's what makes life so wonderful with Christ is that he offers this to us. And that's why God said, I will give to anyone who's thirsty freely from the spring of the water of life. I'll give to anybody who's thirsty. You know, when you realize you have a need, you naturally seek to meet that need. You do. If you are thirsty, you look for a glass of water, right? I mean, like every child seems to be thirsty right at 10 or 10.30 at night. It was in a small group where we resonated and we drew close around Scripture. Yes, but around like if we have to say, get back in bed, you don't need another cup of water. One more time, we're going to lose it. <laughs> Parenting's hard. The struggle is real. And, and if you have a, a desire for a glass of water, a child or adult, you 
you want to quench that thirst. If you're hungry, it's the early service, so maybe the breakfast or the late, the late snack bar you had is tiding you over, but in just a minute, your stomach's going to rumble, and you're going to think, I got a need. I'm hungry. I need to satisfy that need, right? If you feel that you need closeness or, or you feel isolated, what do you look for? You look for community. You look to satisfy that need. And there's a man or a woman who came in here this morning. Maybe you're invited here. Maybe you've always attended here. And, and you came in here knowing, like, I, I, I want, I'm thirsting and I'm hungry and I'm searching for, for all of those things and something that I've never had. New life, a second chance, a do-over. I want to be alive now, but I want what's coming when Jesus returns and what John's describing here. I don't want to be a better version of myself. I want to be made new. And we may experience that just as a shadow of what's to come, but when it fully comes in the life that Jesus will bring us when he returns the second advent, it will be so full and so rich and so unbelievable. God wishes that none of us would miss out on that. I will give freely to anyone who is thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And those who respond will inherit these things and I will be their God and they will be my son or they will be my daughter. The season of Advent guarantees the nearness of God to his people now and one day perfectly unbroken. And the season of Advent also guarantees the newness of his people. We can begin again now, and we will be made vastly better and new because of God's faithfulness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we worship. And I pray that that would put my heart in perspective during this season, and I pray that God would put our hearts and our minds in perspective, that what we would want is him, him to be our God, and for us to be his people and to know that the closeness and the newness of life will be unending when that Advent comes. Let's pray together.